Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1975 film Jaws. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, when we uh, when you picked this movie, we actually talked about this film on the very first episode we did when we uh, I think we each listed uh, movies that we loved and I put this on there. Um, that was really interesting to revisit this because I was thinking like, okay, so that was, you know, I think uh, March of 2020. It's like, how do I feel about Jaws now after watching, you know, 126 movies that we've done or whatever? Um, so I was a little nervous and I'm like, am I going to think this isn't good now? Um, and actually what I found is I, I loved it and I watched it in very different ways. There's things that I hadn't noticed before about it. I think especially filmmaking things I was far more attuned to. So there's a degree to which I think um, doing this podcast has made me appreciate this movie in in uh additional ways i would say well I, I i have to admit sam you know when we talked about this film back at the beginning um i tend to have a prejudice against blockbusters uh i tend to be a little uh snooty about that you know it's not not they're not sophisticated enough films so i was a little bit interested too as to how i would respond to it and of course for me you know going back to it after all those intervening years of spielberg's career um I, I, it did give me kind of a different uh kind of a different lens on it mm -hmm. uh, yeah. absolutely so this movie comes out in 1975 i was not alive yet uh to to see this movie uh did you see this in 1975 i did i was uh the summer i was 16 going on 17 and i i had read the novel and uh and i certainly went to the theater to see the film that is okay. That that was actually my other question: is had you read the Peter Benchley book? I I had I've never read it. I read it this week because I was like, well, I've seen this movie a lot. I need to have a different, another different perspective on it. So I read the uh, I read the Benchley novel. I will say, do you remember what your thoughts were about this movie at a, at age sixteen? Um, a couple. Uh, yeah, I, I I loved it. I mean, I, I thought I thought it was great. Um, I. Uh, um, I, should I say I wasn't as sophisticated a film viewer? Sure, no, sure. It, it was, no I, I thought I thought it was really terrific at the time. Um, I will say for me, I oddly, as somebody born in 1977, I didn't see this movie in the 80s. I didn't see it in the 90s. Um, I think I associated this movie with kind of the sequel crazy 1980s. Because by the time I was of age to be aware of this, I mean, I was 10 years old when jaws the revenge came out which is the fourth jaws movie so by the time i was sort of aware of the world i was like well this is sort of like rocky and rambo and friday the 13th you know so like i think i knew enough to sense that those movies like the that the sequels weren't good so it's like i just never bothered I, you know i uh i also probably i think through a lot of my childhood was fairly unaware of what was happening in culture so you know so I, I didn't sort of think much about it um so i think if you had asked me about this movie in 1995 when i was a freshman in college i would have said oh it's like a horror movie and it's a, it's about making money like that that's kind of what what the, what it's about now what's interesting is when you read 1975 reviews of this movie that's mostly what they say it's like it's it's got some good scares in it and this movie's gonna make a lot of money that was that was pretty much the the uh, reviews um so i first saw this i think in like 2012 so, so me coming to saying oh i love this movie it's not from a childhood perspective it's I, I think it was on netflix i was home alone one night and i thought you know what i've heard people talk about this movie and i by that point i'd heard people talk about it 
in slightly elevated ways. So I thought, well, I should give this a shot. And I will say I was so excited watching the movie Mm. uh, in some ways, because I think it was just, it felt so much better than it should have been to me. Like I thought, well, this is a a shark movie. I'm not really interested in this. I'm not really a horror movie guy. And I just kept thinking like, wow, this is, this is really well-made. And then there are certain moments in this movie where I feel like it levels up. It's like, well, did you like this? Well, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you this now and think about what this, and we'll definitely get to those. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's, you know, so in the last 10 years, it's a movie that I found myself going back to. It was a movie I was excited to show my kids um, and my daughter and I, this is this is a movie we bond over. Um, so whenever whenever I watch it, uh, she always, I always ask her if she wants to watch it with me and quite frequently she does. So, um, so, so this is, this is definitely a father daughter movie for us. Um, so what's interesting about this movie, and we've already hinted at this is this is far and away head and shoulders, the most commercially successful film we've watched on this podcast. Yes, it's not, it's not even close. <laughs> um, so this was, this was, I think the first film to, to make a hundred million dollars in domestic box office. It, at the time, it was the highest grossing movie of all time. And, mm-hmm. and adjusted for inflation, it is still, I think, the seventh highest grossing movie of all time. So um, so that's going to be an interesting thing to think about. You know, I think I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the fact that we have paired this with uh, Jean Dielman as two 1975 movies, and they're an interesting pairing. Uh, but before we get to that, I, I did a little bit of digging into the movies we watched. Do you know what, not adjusted for inflation, what the second most commercially successful movie we watched was <laughs> you're asking me to think about 120 yeah yeah no I, i'm not even going to take a stab at that it one. is no. it is spirited away by far oh, sure that makes because sense. that made yeah. so much money in japan it, it's the highest grossing yeah. movie in japanese right. history yeah so so jaws made unadjusted about 476 million dollars spirited away made 355 million wow. um and then if you adjust for inflation, Jaws makes about $2.6 billion. And the next highest would be The Godfather at $1.7 mm. So mm. we've only watched a hundred or 11 movies that have made $100 million. So this is definitely not like a blockbuster movie podcast. So Jaws stands out in terms of that for sure. We are we are movie snobs. Um, that's right. But, but, you know, but, but that's also worth pointing out, Sam, that films have always been at least Hollywood films have always been a compromise between art and commerce. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are certain people who make films and they may pretend they don't care if people come and see them, but ultimately when you make a movie, you want people to see it. And so I think it's, I think it's always, it's always good to talk about that tension. And uh, there's other filmmakers, uh, Kubrick comes to mind, I think who, I mean, we think of Kubrick as a very artistic filmmaker, but Kubrick worried a lot about making money. He really, he wanted his films to be successful. So I think it's, 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 I think it's fine that we talk about that tension between those, those two areas. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this movie is also credited with kind of being the first big summer blockbuster, one of the death knells for Mm the 1970s new hollywood Mm -hmm. you know it's so this is 75 76 is rocky 77 is star wars you know and at that point we start to shift from you know movies in the 70s movies as a director's medium to movies as a producer's medium in the 80s right that they're that 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 they're and i think because of the 
commercial possibilities people start to people and corporations start to see i mean jaws had a 12 million dollar budget and made almost 500 million dollars so if you're if you're a business person you can't help but look at that and say well how can you ever get that kind of return on investment yeah yeah but you know i mean and so some of these people blame jaws right they 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 blame jaws for the decline of creativity in hollywood and but but you've 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 just pointed a couple interesting things out, Sam. Which is it, it's not just Jaws. It's it's Jaws, and then it's Star Wars, and and that's when things kind of really explode. And and Hollywood is simply in the business of giving people what they want. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you make these films and people come see them, then you're going to make more of those. That's why there are dreadful Jaws uh, sequels. You know, even right. though they're not very good films, the fact is they they made enough money that they kept making them. So, mm-hmm. you know, so and Hollywood has always been in search of big hits. Again, I mean, nobody in Hollywood wants to make films that people don't go see. Now, you know, in the old Hollywood system where you had the A films and the B films, you know, they could afford to support a smaller film that maybe wouldn't make as big a profit. But the fact is that there is almost no a marketing practice with Jaws that didn't exist in some form or another in Hollywood before, but hadn't been used in a sense, everything kind of came together with Jaws. Yep. So, you know, people say, oh, you know, kind of invented the idea that you put your big films in, in the summer. Well, actually, ever since the 1950s and the rise of drive-ins, Hollywood had been aware of the importance of summer releases. Um, they had always... They, they had become aware a couple of years before with the release of Billy Jack, they had become aware of the value of uh, television uh, advertisement rather than print advertisement. They had already started to experiment with wide openings, you know, as opposed to you open in a couple of theaters, you build up a critical uh, reputation, then you, you go wide. They had done some other wide openings. Now, again, nothing quite on the scale of Jaws, but it's like everything that Jaws did was things that Hollywood had done before, but they brought it all together, did it bigger and better. Even the merchandising tie-ins, which is a big deal with Jaws. you know. All, so, so it's like they, they had finally figured out, in a sense, how to harness all of those various elements and bring it together. But I still think that they would not have been successful if it was not a good film. Mm-hmm. Because we have seen, because we've seen efforts, right? We've seen those very marketing efforts completely flop. In fact, there's some very good films out right now, including Spielberg's own Fablemans, which have not done particularly well, even though they have been marketed in some similar similar ways. Right. Uh, so here's another thing I'm curious about, and you may have a sense of this, and you may not. But one of the other things with this movie, and this becomes again something that happens uh, repeatedly in the '80s and '90s, is this then. Sp- bonds a bunch not only sequels but a bunch of like how do we redo this so i mean a, a successful example is that uh ridley scott when he pitches alien it says it's it's jaws in space you know yeah, and you see this right. later with die hard but you know mm-hmm. on a boat or speed but on a boat <laughs> like 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 when you get a successful movie it's like well how do we make that movie again but we just move it over here enough that it's not the exact same thing but we're but we're thinking that way is that is that an old hollywood practice too or is that a response to the success of something like this the massive success yeah i um, i i think it is an old hollywood practice to yeah to a certain extent i mean you could you could argue um well for example there was uh i can't remember the name of it now but bogart tried to do, did a kind of a sequel to casablanca for example so you can think about it that way, or I, or I think the way that Hollywood. I mean, think think about all the genres that have had a big oh, role sure. in Hollywood. So you and I, we've done a number of westerns, right? 
I mean, the 1950s was kind of, you know, Westerns exploded in the 50s because Hollywood figured Westerns are, are really, you know, they're fairly cheap to make and they're an easy way, they're an easy way to make money. In fact, I want to digress for just a second, because I think I, this, this leads me to an interesting point that I ran across recently. Spielberg is the kind of a director who kind of alternates between projects like Jaws, Wars of the World, and War of the Worlds, and kind of more prestige things like Color Purple, obviously, Schindler's List, Bridge of Spies. And I, I, I read one critic who said, this is interesting because John Ford had a very similar career. Like Ford's Westerns were kind of looked down upon, whereas he had more prestige projects like How Green Was My Valley or The, the Quiet Man. And those are the projects for which he gets his Oscars. But what really has lasted in Ford's legacy are the Westerns. And so one wonders if that'll be the case with, with, with Spielberg. Um, the other the other Hollywood connection I would make or the other Hollywood uh, uh, similarity would be another film genre you and I have watched quite a bit of, and that is film noir, right? I mean, look at all the, uh, look at all the noirs that were made. So I think Hollywood has always been copycat. I think the difference is that is that beginning with Jaws and, and movies like Jaws, you get more specific franchise films being created. They're really, no, although, of course, I could go back and I could say, well, what about 1930s and the Thin Man films? Uh, what about 1930s and uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire's uh, dancing films? So, yeah, I mean, Hollywood's a machine that's always tried to find a product that people will keep buying. That's right. Okay, la last question about commercial stuff, and then I promise we'll move off of this. Um, as I was writing questions, I was wondering, and you've almost hinted at this when you talked about your feelings about rewatching this, is how does the commercial success, or maybe if you want to think it differently, the out-and-out -out commercial aspirations of this film, how does it color the way it is viewed or evaluated like like is this a move is this a film that is like that that's baggage that you bring maybe not you but somebody brings to it clearly when i talked about viewing it that was what i brought to it and i was so surprised that it wasn't merely those things um yeah, yeah I, I i i think it's two things i, th I think there, there is the baggage of it being a blockbuster although we don't approach a film at the godfather that way right we don't say oh, this is hugely popular it can't be a great film no we say this is a really good film so i, th I think that what actually uh uh is is more to Jaws' detriment is its genre. So the, you know, The Godfather is an important genre. That's a you know, it's a that, that's a, that's a, a gangster film. That that's okay. But this is a horror film, uh, and I think that horror film has traditionally, you know, you and I, if you look at that uh, sight and sound top one hundred list, we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. It is it is slanted towards certain genres. Um, comedies have a tough time making it, and certainly horror has a really hard time. There is a kind of a prejudice against horror as a, as a serious genre. I think that's changed a lot in recent years. I think in the last 15 to 20 years, that's begun to, to change. But I think that's one of the big things that, that Jaws has against it in terms of people having a steam for it. That, that makes a lot of sense. So here's the, uh, so I was thinking about coupling this with Jean Dielman. Um, so here's sort of the tale of the tape between these two movies. So they both come out in 1975. Uh, Chantel Ackerman is 25 years old. Spielberg's 27 years old. So he's, um, so they're both, they're both pretty young filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Jean Dielman is an experimental art film. This is a conscious Hollywood blockbuster. 
Gene, Gene Dielman is a very woman-centered film. Mm. This is a decidedly white man-centered film. Uh, Gene Dielman uses a static camera and long <laughs> takes. This movie uses every camera move you could imagine. Uh, so moving cameras, handheld tracking shots. It has very kinetic editing. I mean, this movie, that's one of the that's one of the things that jumped out to me. I just got so excited about the film editing. Verna Fields has won an Oscar for this. Yeah. Um, so so like just just very different, you know, but both of them, I mean, both of them are on sight and sound list. So Jaws is not on the the sight and sound critics list, but it's 62 on the director's list. So this is a movie that film directors, one of my favorites, Quentin Tarantino has had this on his um, his sight and sound list and on his 10 he, he had mm. jaws on there so this is a movie that directors are clearly drawn to obviously gene dealman is one on the critics list four on the director's list so very different things coming out um at this uh at the same time um when we think about spielberg as a director um this is the second spielberg movie we've done i'm gonna put you on the spot one more time do you remember the other spielberg film we yeah, did we did ai that's right. Okay. I, 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 th- I forgot about that. And I was writing, this is our first one. And then I thought, no, it's not. We did talk about him. Um, what comes to mind when you think of Spielberg as a director, now that we've had 50 years of his career, you talked about, I mean, he's kind of having a, a moment right now. He, the Fablemans won the best picture drama at the golden globes. He sure. won best director at the golden globes. Um, as you think about him as a filmmaker, what are the hallmarks you think about? Well, one thing I think about him, I alluded to earlier, Sam, is that he he's a filmmaker who works in different genres. Um, I mean, not not as broadly as some, but still, I, th- I, I think I think he has kind of two main modes. I, I think he has the the films that I would call, you know, really popular entertainment, um, well-made popular entertainment. And then he has the films, that, as I said earlier, I think are the more are, are the more serious are the more serious films that undertake that take on some really uh, heavy topics, and you know, I think the, the the film that epitomizes that for him probably would be would be Schindler's Schindler's List, um, and, and and Bridge of Spies, and, and you know, War uh, War Horse, uh, you know, those films that have you know really serious content. So, so first of all, I would say there's that about about Spielberg. Um, but the other thing I would say about Spielberg, and this comes out very strongly in Jaws, is and this is, I'm going to connect him to another classic Hollywood director, Howard Hawks. Um, Hawks's films really revolve around male bonding. Um, and that's a big characteristic of a Spielberg film. He, he doesn't really do, um, he doesn't do a great job with relationship with, with women, to be, to be frank. Uh, I haven't yet seen Fablements, but I am really interested in how he tell, deals with the character of his mother in that film. Um, but but if, if you, to, to jump into a scene in Jaws, for example, to illustrate this, um, the camaraderie that develops on the boat before the famous Indianapolis speech, uh, it really, what goes on between, between Hooper and Quint is really a kind of romantic um, uh, entering into a deeper and deeper re- re- relationship where they literally expose their flesh to each other and share these things about each other. It's, if, if you insert a woman into one of those places, then you actually have kind of a classic romantic scene. But as is typical of Spielberg, it, in, it involves men. So he's, he's much better at dealing with male relationships, male bonding, uh, male uh, competition. The other thing I would say about Spielberg, which is often typical, especially early in his career, and you see this very much in Jaws and E.T., 
uh, and uh, close encounters. He's very interested in the nuclear family. He's, he's very interested in preserving the uh, and threats to the nuclear family. And in Jaws, the nuclear family is kind of also the entire community on Amity Island. He's really interested in, in, in what threatens those, uh, those basic elements of civilization and how you defend them, how you defeat those, those threats. I think he becomes more sophisticated about that as his career goes along, but that's still kind of a central, uh, essential element of his, of his thinking. Yeah, it's in, the, the family thing is interesting. I was listening to a podcast and um, Sean Fantasy pointed out that like if you watch this movie, with the exception of the beach party at the beginning, there is not a single, single woman in the movie. Mm-hmm. The women you see are all, you know, Mrs. Kittner, Mrs. Brody, like like they're all, you know, wives and mothers you know that they're that 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 that, it's that and then it's and then it's these uh then it's these men um what i love about watching this movie is i mean although he's 27 spielberg is i mean this is the third major thing he directs he directs sugarland express and then duel as a um as a, a tv movie he also was directing episodic tv i think since he was 19 so like so he's not new to directing at this point that being said, this still feels like the type of movie somebody would make if they only if they if they if they didn't know they were going to make another one. I feel like he throws everything he could put into this movie into it. Um, and what's interesting, reading Spielberg talk about this uh, in hindsight, he actually says that there's all kinds of things that's like, oh, if I had known better, I wouldn't have tried to do this or this or this. Like I, I would have shot it in a, I wouldn't have shot it in the ocean, you know, but that's what makes it look so great is that they are so clearly actually out in the ocean. This isn't uh, you know, there's something, there's something so um, strange about not seeing land anywhere and, you know, and, and having that, that sort of very, very real feel of the ocean. Um, so I feel like he's throwing all of the camera tricks he can think of, everything that he's absorbed by the age of 27 he's trying to put into this. Um, uh, this movie has clearly two distinct pieces to it. So um, I'm trying my best to not just walk through the entire movie because I, I, I kind of love it all. But but I do want to do a little bit um, because I, I, I do think there's there's so many interesting things he does with the either storytelling or with the camera. So this movie, because it's a horror movie, it has actually a pretty great horror opening. It opens with a bang. You get the, I mean, you get the underwater shot and you get the introduction of the John Williams score and especially the jaws theme, which plays such a crucial role here. Williams. I think this is John Williams. First Oscar um, is for this as well. And then you get this great tracking shot of the beach party and then you get the first shark attack. Um, and it's what's interesting is nobody you meet there matters to this. I mean, it, they, not that they don't matter. They don't show up again in this movie other than uh, the, 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 the kid from Greenwich who's in like the second scene. And then but it's like but then we move on from this. Uh, but that's that's a you know, that's a great horror setup. You get sort of a, an anonymous kill at the beginning to set things in motion. And, and I should also say, um uh, Sam, that that was also not exactly how they wanted to shoot it initially. It's what it's one of many scenes where either technical problems with the with the, with the mechanical shark or whatever, you know, prevented them from actually they were going to show the shark during the attack, and it turns out they couldn't do it. So that's one thing we should quickly get out of the way, right? Which everybody probably already knows about Jaws, but they had three mechanical sharks. Uh, they had a lot of problems with the sharks functioning properly. And so Spielberg was kind of a force as a result. And he, of course, said this was a good thing. 
he was forced not to show the shark as much as he had planned on it. And of course, that's where you end up with, with the actual uh, suspense. Albert Hitchcock said something about, you know, if you have a bomb under a table, it doesn't go off. That's, that's how you've got suspense. Um, and, and, and I do want to go back to what, in that connection, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about Spielberg kind of throwing everything out there that he could do. Um, it's also, it, may, it makes me think a little bit about Citizen Kane, which is, you know, where Wells didn't even know the rules he was breaking. And so, you know, Spielberg, I mean, he knew that filming in a tank was an option, but he didn't want to film in a tank because he wanted the, he wanted the verisimilitude of being on, on the ocean. As a result, the film went 103 days over schedule. So it looked like it was heading for disaster. But the point there is that because he didn't know that that wasn't the way to do it, he ended up doing it that way. And so there, there's a lot of serendipity that goes into the success that he has in making this. And I want to say one other thing about, about Spielberg's uh, filmmaking background. He spent so much time making films on his own as a kid that he could have been Greg and me and Earl and the, and the Dying Girl. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's... He's, he's somebody who's been making films for a really long time. And yet at the same time, as you know, it is kind of like his first big, first big project. Right. And, and what's interesting, we talked, talked about with like the limitations of the and the malfunctions of the mechanical sharks. It's one of those great things where he actually didn't really have budget issues here because he went way over budget. And for the most part, the studio because they were in on this movie and in on this book that he had other things then to create those limitations because it seems like he got the money when he needed it. He got the locations when he needed it, but it yeah. was so other things because I think directors need that sometimes like they need that tension of things aren't working the way I want. So I need to be creative. And and from that creativity, we sometimes get really great things. Um, so the other thing that I, I I love this movie has great character introductions. The first time we we meet characters, so from there we we go to meeting Brody and kind of starting to meet the town. And this is one of the major changes from the book that I think is crucial. This is this goes on the list of movies where the movie is far better than the book. Mm -hmm. I think because Spielberg simplifies the the story so much. Um, one of the things that he does though is in the Benchley book. Brody is an Islander and it's, mm -hmm. and it's more about class on the Island. You know, mm -hmm. his, his wife is also an Islander, but she's a rich Island. She comes from a rich Island family and he doesn't, but by making him a New York city cop that has sort of retired to Amity to like get an easier job. It means that he can hide all of this exposition because mm -hmm. we need to learn a lot about what Island life is like. We need to learn a lot about sharks. We need to learn a lot about fishing and boats and all this stuff. And if he's not from there, people need to keep telling him things so it doesn't feel like exposition dumps. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, the, the more I watch it, the more brilliant that choice is to me. And the other thing that I find interesting is he, as, as Brody is starting to kind of walk through the town for him, there's great shots of like establishing what does this town look like and things like this. But you also in background conversations with secondary tertiary and whatever comes after tertiary characters are saying things that if you pay attention to them are setting the scene and setting the tensions up about what it means to be an island community what the fourth of july means what all of these different pieces mean i think that is so well done narratively because i this movie feels like it should have an exposition dump and it kind of does if you are paying attention but it never feels like it I think that, yeah, I think the point about the changes from the book is a really good one, uh, Sam. There are, there are other changes, as you're aware of. So, uh, 
he cuts out an affair between Hooper and, and Brody's wife. And you're right. I mean, he's got the, he's got the narrative, um, uh, very, you know, we talked a lot about films that do exposition economically or economic and, and giving you information. And he does, he does a really, uh, a really beautiful job, a job of that. And that also kind of sets up the two halves of the film, right? Cause you get the whole, you know, you, you get kind of the whole picture of what's happening on shore and then you move into, uh, into the ocean. And then, and, and then we get one of the, one of my favorite shots in this movie is the sustained fairy shot. And mm. I don't know what to call it. Cause it's not a tracking shot. Cause the camera is it's handheld, I think there, but it doesn't really move, but the platform they're on moves. So you see the world behind them move as they're in this static shot. I was trying to think it, it reminds me of like a version of like the Spike Lee dolly shot where he'll have the person on the dolly with the camera and they'll spin it. So like the world is moving behind them, mm-hmm. but, but, but so it's, it's like, it's such a, it's such a beautiful, cool looking shot with this smooth movement, but every, but all the characters are stationary and they're just standing, having a conversation. Uh, that's just such a great idea for a shot. Um, and I'm sure that's the kind of thing that people, uh, that people steal. Um, mm. the other, the other thing we get in that is we get the introduction of mayor Vaughn. So Murray Hamilton, uh, playing mayor Vaughn and Vaughn gets to be the person who expresses the big tension of this movie. Now I will say, you know, which is like, do we shut the beaches down, um, or not? And this really, you know, is a tension about short-term public safety. Like there is a man-eating shark out there and in this, in essence, long-term public safety, like, are we going to continue to exist as a community economically? Cause if we don't, will there be a next summer? Um, and, uh, this movie f- is so different to watch now after COVID because that's the exact conversations we were having about, well, what do shutdowns mean? What does it mean to close schools and businesses and will things come back? And, um, it turns out in 1975, he made a great COVID movie. <laughs> It's a really interesting point, Sam, and it's it also I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, even though we talked about this film as sort of being the death of the new Hollywood, um, there was a way in 1975. This is the same year as Network. Um, this this film could actually be seen as kind of anti-establishment, and this is a film made uh, right after the Watergate era uh, and right at the end of the Vietnam era. So we haven't talked about what sociological conditions might have pre, pre, might have uh, prepared people for this film. So I think the, the idea that the mayor at the time that he makes this film looks, looks like the bad guy. The film lo- ends up looking very anti-establishment uh, and, and maybe a, li- a little a little more uh, untraditional than we tend to think of uh, think of it as, as being now. So uh, because people were kind of fed up with the establishment at the time and the, and, and it, the film kind of fits into that mode. Yeah, and, and and Vaughn then becomes less. I mean, it's interesting because the film has a horror villain in the shark, and then is like, is Vaughn the villain, or is he the obstacle, or is he presenting the obstacle? Um, and and this is also on. The, this is all within that same shot on the ferry, and he also has the great line about the psychology, right? He says, uh, you know, you yell barracuda, and people are like, huh, what? You yell shark attack, and you have a panic on the Fourth of July. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's just it's like you. He he is explaining how dangerous it is to let the public know uh, how dangerous it is to the livelihood of the, the of the island and things like that. So I like 
I'm not, I'm not like a pro, I'm not a pro mayor Vaughn person here, but it, but it is, he seems like such a more interesting character. And I think that performance is really good. And again, this is, this is where Spielberg simplifies in the book. The pressure comes from the mafia who's Vaughn tied. It's like, you don't need that. All you need is a guy who's thinking about how does this town stay alive? What I also like, and and yeah, Murray Hamilton's one of the great little one of, one of those great character actors, supporting actors in in Hollywood. Um, but what I also like about what happens there is that you know Brody. This is part of him being an outsider too, of course. You know, Brody uh, kind of gives in to the mayor's pressure, and he's the one that ends up literally taking the brunt of the blame for for, for from the mother whose son has been uh, captured by the uh, eaten by the shark. By the way, I want to say that that was a very that was surprising to me because one of the things that I would have said about Spielberg, and we talked about this a little bit with AI, is we think about Spielberg as kind of a sentimentalist, and I was really surprised that he killed the little boy. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if he really were the sentimentalist you expect from Spielberg, it would have been a close call. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he was setting it up for the kid to be lunch. And I kept, and I kept thinking, All right, you know, I'm sure the kid will be, I mean, it'll be a threat and the kid will get away. But but no, he lets the shark get him. So I think that's another way in which he kind of embraces that uh, that horror element. Well, and, okay, so, and that, so that gets into what I think is the second best scene in this movie, which is the, the beach scene where Alex Kittner dies, like that whole setup, because it's post first shark attack. So we're aware of the shark, nobody else on the beaches except for Brody. And I think Brody's wife. Yeah. Um, But, but no, but nobody else is. And so there is this tension of like, what's going to happen. Um, And this is, this is where the editing just goes off the charts are great. There's the series where you're watching Brody stare at the ocean and there's a series of wipes and the wipes they're, they're, you know, horizontal wipes and the wipes are people walking in front of the camera. And every time it wipes, it's the same shot of Brody, but tighter. So every time somebody passes, we're tighter, tighter, tighter in. And they do these wipes later as they're cutting between Brody and the ocean, but having that physical object come across. Cause it, it gives you that feel of being beach level um and I, that's that's just brilliant and then as you point out part of that tension is narratively they lay out three options to say well the tar- the shark could attack the dog playing fetch yeah. it could attack alex al kittner or it could attack the woman who's floating out there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 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 you're right like you think like well they're not going to go for the kid like you could sacrifice the dog and you know to do that but 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 then but then he uh he makes that um he makes that choice so i want to just side tangent here another thing that i loved about this movie uh, this is going to sound strange but i loved seeing 1970s bodies that this is a beach movie where you're not looking around at a bunch of beautiful people who've been in the gym for you know you know six years perfecting their bodies like these are i mean like it actually looks like humanity out there so when you see that woman out there like she's a big woman out on the beach right like um i think that's and the same thing with age like Mm -hmm. i look at alex kittner's mother and i think she looks way too old to have a child that age Mm -hmm. but then i look at I look at um, uh, Robert Shaw in this movie. He's mm-hmm. two years older than me in this yeah. movie. So it's like, okay, so I need to I need to throw out what I think about age and what people look like at an age because this is definitely capturing uh, capturing that moment. Um, we then get the the shark attack, and 
maybe the most famous shot of the movie is the uh, the Jaws shot where he pushes the camera physically in on Brody while he zooms out. So you get Brody in foreground stable and the whole background kind of like warps and melts. It's like, that's, that's, I mean, that's maybe the most famous shot in this movie. Um, and such a, it, 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 it captures that moment of like snapping into realization and the world kind of influx around him. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's the same technique Hitchcock used for vertigo. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a, and I don't, I'm, I'm sure Spielberg was aware of that, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great moment. The other thing I love about, about, in, in, in uh, uh, about the water photography is they, they built cameras that were waterproof. So when you're, when he cuts to the swimmers, the water level is a little bit above the, a little bit above the camera. So you're seeing the water kind of slosh up and it, it again, puts you in the exact point of view of what it's like to play in the water when you're deep enough where you're kind of up to your shoulders and even the sound. Sometimes when the water goes up and covers up the camera, the sound drops out as if you also dropped, you know, what, what it sounds like to go into the water. And then there are a series of shots. I think this is more on the 4th of July where, people are starting to first see the shark or the fake shark and you're getting people looking right into camera and they're so close to you with other people behind them. And it looks exactly and feels exactly like you are swimming in that water, which adds to the terror of you're not just watching people. You're in the water with them. So you are also, and, and, and the thing is behind you that they're looking at, like it is, it's, it's a brilliant uh, setup for those, those in the water shots. Well, and the, the other thing that's brilliant about the about the pacing here is um, that the the misdirect with the fake shark, mm-hmm. right? So so he builds up tension, and then it turns out, oh no, it's just it's just a prank. But that precedes the shark going into the pond, you know. So it's like he he he's he's really expert at ratcheting it up, releasing it, and then ratcheting it up again. Uh, so it's like if you if you didn't have the initial um scare and then relief the next scare that comes along wouldn't be as powerful mm-hmm. um, and i think that's part of how the first half of that film really really works because he keeps he keeps raising the stakes relieving the tension and then raising the raising the stakes again well and yeah and at, and at that fourth of july is the first time that we really start to see the shark at least in the water and you start to get a sense of the size. One of uh, another great shot is when the youngest Brody kid is sitting on the beach playing yeah. and we see the shark going to the pond and all you see is the fins, but you see this child who's in no danger because he's on the beach, but behind him, it, you realize the size of this shark and it gets, and, and it is again, terrifying, terrifying because he is a small vulnerable child and you know where that shark is headed to his brother. Um, and, and it's just this slow, quiet scene of this shark gliding through the water and, and you it's, see the fins. It's also a classic horror film irony, right? The very thing you do to protect is the film that actually is the action that actually creates the danger. Yes, yes. I mean, um, you, you know the minute he sends him to the pond, that's a bad idea. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, jump, jumping ahead. So after the, there's the reward, there's the town hall meeting, which we could talk about. That's great. But um, we finally get Hooper showing up in the movie. So, you know, we, we've gone this far. We haven't even mentioned Richard Dreyfuss's character who, who shows up at this point. Um, there's the great scene after the fishermen come back with the tiger shark and... 
I love how on for both Brody and the mayor, how relieved they look like mm-hmm. it's palpable. The relief of like, oh, maybe we're done with this. Maybe maybe we got out of this. And then back at the house, there's and this is the this is a very Spielberg moment with some E.T. DNA when it's Brody and his young son, Sean and Bre- and Sean is mimicking his father so like when he takes a drink he takes a drink when he puts his hand like and and there is just this sort of moment of father son connection which is very spielbergy um uh and that's you can sort of see you can see elements of spielberg future in in that moment um and then then dreyfus comes in or hooper comes in and uh they do the shark autopsy they go find Ben Gardner's boat, which was added later, um, the 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 scene with with Ben Gardner's head, uh, and this is where I feel a little bit like when I hear that story, I think about Spielberg as being very calculating because mm-hmm. he saw a screening and saw how people responded to the first time uh, when when Brody's chumming and we see the shark pop up and this this kind of screams he got from the audience, and he Spielberg describes it as being greedy for another one of those, so he adds that in there and. That's one of those where, where, you know, I think like, okay, it like, like, I don't, I don't like how calculating that feels, although that's a very effective scene at the same time. Yeah. And we get foreshadowing of Hooper dropping things in the ocean, right? He (laughs) drops the shark tooth, just like he drops the syringe spear later on. Yeah. Yeah. So it it doesn't, it doesn't feel tacked on at all. Uh, So it it, it really, it really works well. I I, want to say something about, you mentioned when, when Dreyfus and Hooper shows up at the he shows up at the house with the bottle of wine, or the two bottles of wine. Um, it, it's it's inter- there's, there's a couple of things interesting about that. One is it's again a, it's a bonding scene over alcohol, mm-hmm. and then it's contrasted. It's all but it's also a social commentary because he brings in wine, and then it's contrasted with Quint offering the uh, the home brew, whatever that is that 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 he's that he gives to Brody before they get on the boat. So you get this very strong class distinction. But then on the boat. They bond over the home brew, right? And then they actually share that together. So it's there's some very subtle, um, maybe not so subtle at times, social commentaries uh, going on with Hooper representing kind of you know the upper class scientist, and Quint is the uh, is the working class uh, uh, rough hewn uh, uh, sailor. Right, right, and and Brody's the fish out of water who yeah, doesn't exactly. understand the island life. Right. Um. So then we get the Fourth of July. We get the attack in the pond. And this this sort of leads to the closing scene before the second half of the movie, and that and it, it's it's one more thing I want to talk about, which is I love Murray Hamilton's performance as Mayor Vaughn after the Fourth of July attack because he has been pushing so much about keeping the beaches open. He's very confident about what needs to be done, and he is so shell shocked in that scene where Brody is just trying to convince him, like, just sign your name to this. We need to hire Quint. And I, it's such a great performance. Like, like again, I feel, I internalize what he's performing and what he's feeling at that moment. I think that's so that's so effective. Yeah, it is. And we get it. There, we get another moment there where where the wife, uh, Brody says, to, you know, about the the younger son, take him home, and she says, home to New York. Mm. <laughs> so there is this sense of like if she was pushing them towards living on the island, cause Brody clearly doesn't love it. Like was there's a sense of like, maybe she's now at the point of we need to be done with this. And Brody says, no home here. 
So he that that's his moment of saying I have this this kind of commitment. So here, if this if this oddly two hour movie needed an intermission, perfect intermission break if it needed it, but it doesn't. And then we go into the second half of the movie, and it completely changes. Right? You go. It was this movie about public safety versus economic and political realities and all of a sudden then it just becomes like moby dick in the second half right and we get we get uh we get the three guys on the orca um and this is where again i talked about moments where this movie levels up i love the first movie but once mayor vaughn who i think is great leaves and quint becomes the driving force obstacle kind of in the in the second half it's like oh this movie just got better because you replace murray hamilton with robert shaw (laughs) playing like like the best robert shaw i've ever seen yes um and uh you know it's it begins with the the scene with the equipment right and this sets up the new tension which is like it's kind of craft versus science Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. quint versus hooper like you said kind of um upper class, lower class, like, like different approaches to how we're going to do this. And, and we see that tension. And what I love about Quint is that he play, he is such a bully to both of them, to both Brody and, but especially to Hooper, but, but to both of them, right. He's, he's gonna, I love the scene where he takes uh, uh, Hooper's hands and he says, you know, these are, uh, yeah, you know, these hands have been counting money. Right. (laughs) Um, But then, there are moments on the boat where Quint betrays that bully character. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite little grace moments in there is when um, Brody goes to get a new, the, the chum marker and he pulls the wrong line and the tank start to spill. And Hooper starts to yell at him about how dangerous the compressed air is. And then mm-hmm. when Hooper leaves, Quint stops him and uh, stops Brody and pulls, pulls him aside and says, Next time, Chief, ask me, I'll tell you which line to pull. And he doesn't say it in an angry way. He says it like, mm-hmm. he's like, I kind of want to be on your side here. Like, like, like I, I want to connect with you. It's very fatherly in a kind of way, you know, but and not, not in a scary way. And I, I love that little moment because other than that, he seems like he's just kind of ribbing these guys the whole time. Uh, but there is this moment where he's like, I'm going to look out for you too. Yeah, I, I, I think Spielberg knew that, um, he had he had to and this is just another this is another hallmark of Spielberg. You asked about that earlier. Um, uh, I think about think about films like Saving Private Ryan. You know that when he puts these characters together, they're not static. They actually develop as characters and they develop as relationships. So by the time Quint dies, um, I actually care about him. Mm-hmm. And when he first shows up, I think he's not a person I would want to spend five minutes with. But by the time you get to the end, especially having having heard the Indianapolis story. You know, you actually care for him. And he, as you said, he begins to show care for Hooper. He begins to show care for Brody. So the relationships start to do develop. At the same time, the other reason why this part of the film is so terrific is because it's got, it's so archetypal. There's so many different ways you could talk about their relationships to each other. Each of them can represent different things in different kind of archetypal schemes. And to me, that's one of the, the strengths of the film is that it's both really realistic but it's also at the same time, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, almost symbolic in terms of how you think about what each of these characters kind of represents. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, the other thing that it does here, we talked about exposition earlier. Now it's moved entirely out of telling to showing. I don't know how you catch a shark, but I, after I watch this movie, I'm like, 
oh, I think I could do like not that I could do it, but like I could explain to somebody, here's our strategy for how we're going to land a 25 foot shark. Like the thing with the barrels, like they don't explain it. They do it. And then you realize, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, kind of how the different steps to what they're doing and why you would chum and what this would do and what this would do. And even the thing when he strat, when he gets the presumably potentially the shark on the fishing line, and he straps himself in it's like i've never been deep sea fishing like oh i guess that makes sense if you're gonna land a fish that's even your body weight you you're gonna need to be strapped into the boat you can't just reel that like like things like that that are maybe obvious realities it doesn't tell you it just shows you him doing it and you realize oh that makes sense that's how you would do this that's how you do this i love stuff like that and i love the pace i love you know when he straps himself in i love the i mean that becomes even even that becomes a miniature moment of tension because you're like oh wait a minute Maybe he's not going to get strapped in in time before the reel starts to draw. And the, and the little close-ups and he clicks the he, you know, the way he clicks it in. It's just it's it could have been a throwaway scene, but he, he actually created it as a moment of tension, which was terrific. So then we get the 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 first real view of the shark when Brody's chumming, and uh, the great like snapshot of of um, Scheider popping up and looking at it. And then backing in and getting the famous, apparently ad-libbed line, you're going to need a bigger boat, the most <laughs> misquoted, one of the most misquoted lines in uh, in, in in films. Um, and then this leads us to nighttime. And this is the, this is the scene as we're, as our time is waning here that I want to make sure we talk about. We talk, I talk about this movie leveling up. Like I was totally on board the first time I watched this. When we get to the scene of those three guys in the boat at night, I realized this is where the movie, if it wasn't already to me, great. It's like it becomes great. The comparing of the two of the of the the two guys comparing scars, um, the joke Hooper makes about the broken heart, and just like how, like you said, they are. This is, becomes a hangout movie for a little bit here, right? And they are bonding, and then the Indianapolis speech comes and it levels up again. And I and it's again I I it breaks my heart that Robert Shaw doesn't have an Oscar like that speech right there. Like that's what a supporting actor Oscar is, is, is that speech. Um, and a lot of people claim to have hands in writing that speech, you know, from, uh, Car- from Carl Gottlieb to John Milius to Robert Shaw himself, who was a playwright. Like, right? um, but it is, it is the moment where you get this uh, thing we've talked about before, even with Jean Dielman, like you get this tie to the second world war, you get this sense of like, like, like when he's the, the haunting line of I'll never wear a life jacket again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it, that that is a foreshadowing of Quint's death, because he's saying, like, I don't really have an interest in I don't have an interest in living through something again. I, I, I would rather that maybe I would rather that I didn't make it out of that. I, I have to say, as an aside, that one of the scenes that Spielberg wanted to, to put in was Quint watching um, the film of uh, John Huston's film of Moby Dick. Uh, but but Gregory Peck had the copyright and went allowed to do it. But anyway, that just connects him. To, I, I say that, Sam, to kind of connect it with what you were just saying, and that is that just as Ahab cannot survive the Moby Dick hunt, so we know that Quint, that would foreshadow for us that Quint's not going to survive uh, this hunt as well. Hunt as well. And the, the one of the great parts about that scene then is it doesn't end with the Indianapolis speech. It ends with them singing (laughs) that it's like, like, cause, cause that could be the, the, the end of that scene and everybody's just trying to chilled by the story, but instead 
he goes into song, they start singing all together, and then things go awful, right? Then the shark starts attacking the boat. Well, the, the singing is important because it brings Brody back into it because mm-hmm. he, he doesn't he doesn't have the scars they have, so that enables them all to be bonded. And but yeah, this that the scene is so brilliant for so many reasons, including the one major reason we haven't talked about, which is just he creates this beautiful calm before the storm. Uh, and again, it's all about Spielberg's control over the rhythm and the pacing of, of, of the film. And so the scene goes on long enough so you almost forget there's a shark out there. It's almost mm-hmm. like, hey, we're just having a good time on this boat. Uh, and then reality reintrudes. Right, right. Um, so then when we get to day two, I mean, there's the the crucial moment when when Brody's kind of call the Coast Guard and Quint smashes the... Um, smashes the radio and this 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 ties back to that life jacket i'm gonna die here scene which or like idea is like he's you know that's his all-in moment of like there is there actually is no the only solution is killing this shark or killing me yeah like like that's that's um such a great symbol of that um I love that there, there's a great three shot of them when they're trying to draw the shark back towards shore where Quint is in the, it's sort of a, a pyramid shot. Quint is in the center in the front and you see Brody and Hooper hanging off the, off the back and the barrels in the background. There's a lot of just like beautiful um, ocean photography uh, uh, in, in this. Uh, but then we move in day two, we move from Quint's plan to Hooper's plan. So now we get the shark cage, um, so here's where it's like the, the, the fisherman's craft is, is proving insufficient. We get the shark cage, which Quint was making fun of at the beginning and now they're doing it. Um, and this leads to one of the most amazing pieces of footage in this, um, which is if, if you've read the book, you know, that, uh, Hooper's dies in the shark cage in the book, mm-hmm. but as they were filming, and that was supposed to happen in the film, but as they were filming it, they used a smaller cage and a real shark. And they got that footage of the shark getting caught on the cage and actually like shaking and attacking the cage. And the footage was so great that they said, well, we need to use this, but Hooper's not in the cage. So they changed the story to say, well, Hooper gets out of the cage so we can have this phenomenal footage of a shark actually attacking it. And that's the reason that Hooper ends up living in this. And that was a great decision because that, that, that is amazing footage, no doubt about it. Um, so then we get the death of Quint, we get the death of the shark. Um, and, uh, in, in the end of the movie, I mean, I think, I think this really peaks to me at the, the sort of the night before, and then it has the, you know, the, the, that sort of last day, but, um, but yeah, I, I love this movie. I, so I, I have to say something about the death of the shark because, um, the way that Spielberg sets this up is quite brilliant and, and it quite symmetrical. So as you pointed out, Quint's approach to killing the shark fails. Hooper's approach fails. So what does succeed? Well, what succeeds is a combination of those two approaches um, uh, that's carried out by Brody. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have the oxygen tank in the shark's mouth. So there's Hooper. You've got the rifle. There's Quint. And you've got Brody firing it. So the three different methods, and, and, and it all comes down around, and this is, of course, very much very Spielbergian. It comes down to that middle-aged white male who is the ultimately the great protector of society, and he's the one that's able to blow up the, blow up the yeah. shark. Well, and there's even foreshadowing to that. If you think earlier in the movie when when he's looking at flipping through books of sharks, 
you see a picture of a shark with an air tank in its mouth. Yes. Yep. You know, and and uh and and there's so so as I rewatch that I see that scene it's like, oh that okay, he's even laying laying the groundwork for that for that visual image. Do you have anything else you want to talk about with this movie? I have oh, a this, couple of little This is kind items. of a coda. I have to say that you know Peter Benchley, um, who has a cameo as a reporter in the film. Peter Benchley later uh, expressed regret that he had demonized sharks. And he actually formed a uh, he formed an organization that promotes the conservation of sharks. And even Spielberg said he feels a little bit bad about how sharks became villainized as a result. But I certainly remember at the time people being afraid to go in the water uh, because of the film. No doubt about it. I think one of the one of the amazing things that happens in this movie is getting those three actors. Those are three actors who are all. Oscar caliber actors, right? You know, um, Shaw had been nominated for a man for all seasons, Scheider for the French connection. Dreyfus ends up winning in 1977. So, so getting those people who are maybe overqualified for a move for, for this movie in this movie sort of elevates it. Um, and it's at the same time, uh, Spielberg didn't want really big names. He didn't want Charlton Heston, for example, rather than mm-hmm. Roy Scheider. Uh, and Shaw's most recent success, success had been in the Sting as well, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, they're big enough. They're big enough, but they're not really big. And uh, and Dreyfus is still kind of building his reputation. Well, and I mean talent more than more than yeah. name recognition too. Yeah. Like like those are those are the type of they're the perfect actors for those roles. Um, just to, and just a. Two last things to note about 1977. Jaws is nominated for Best Picture in one of the murderer's rows of Best Picture uh, nominees. So the, the five nominees for Best Picture were Jaws, Altman's Nashville, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, man. What was it like to go to the movies in 1975? Oh, that was a great year to go to the movies. I, went, I saw all of those films. That was a, that was a great year. Uh, I, I got one more thing to add, Sam. Um, Spielberg did not was not on set for the last day of the shoot because he he had heard a rumor believed that the crew was going to dump him in the water. And that has begun a tradition. Spielberg is not on set for the last the last shoot of any of his films. So for what that's worth. All right. Last story I'm going to tell about about watching this movie. The, the strangest instance that ever happened watching this movie. Uh, about two or three years ago, my daughter and I were watching this in our backyard. I had set up our projector, our big screen in our backyards. We're watching it outside at night in the summer. And as we are sitting there, a possum walks up between us and the screen and looks at us. And at that, after it looks at us, it turns around and looks at the screen just as the shark with its teeth is coming up. And that possum ran away as fast as I've ever seen anything move. And it may be the first possum who's ever been scared to death by a shark. In shark. This. It was, it was so, it was just such perfect timing. And it, it saw us and was scared. And then it saw the shark and thought, where am I? <laughs> uh, all right, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, um, Sam, what I, 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 what I want to do is I want to continue on this path of watching uh, films in the top 10 of sight and sound that we've not yet watched. So this means next week I want to watch uh, the 2000 film In the Mood for Love, uh, directed by Wong Kar Wai. It's been a really, it's been a film that's been, it's the highest rated of any on the uh, of any film released in the last 25 years. The highest on the sight and sound list. Been very influential. So I think that would be uh, a great example of Hong Kong cinema. Oh, I cannot wait! I watched this movie a 
a few years ago when I became aware of the sight and sound list, because I think it was the most, one of the most contemporary movies on the 2010 list. Um, Can't wait for that. Barrett, thank you so much for picking this movie, for letting me talk about uh, a movie that I love. And I will say after rewatching it, I still love this movie. I still (laughs) thoroughly enjoy it. I think there's so much interesting uh, filmmaking and storytelling in this. Um, That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about in the mood for love in the video story.